welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, uh, obviously, Crystal's not here. She'll be back uh, next week. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Taking care of some family stuff. But uh, today it is Kyle and Friend. It will be myself and David Dole, the Rational National, who does a political YouTube show. Um, really intelligent guy. Uh, I think he does a phenomenal job. He's one of these people who has a very good eye for determining what should be covered and what shouldn't be, uh, filtering out the stuff that's useless noise and honing in on the stuff that's actually very substantive and important. I think he's one of the best in the business at um, story selection. And uh, I think he's a very level-headed, reasonable, intelligent person. And truth be told, I'm curious about his background. I'm curious about his come-up. I'm curious about his life experiences. I'm also curious, maybe we'll talk about issues where we agree and maybe disagree. Talk about Bernie and we're the state of the left right now. So uh, without further ado, we're doing a little bit different this week since Crystal's not here. We're going to go ahead and jump right into it. Everybody enjoy. Here's David Dole, The Rational National. David Dole of The Rational National. It's a real pleasure to talk to you, man. I've been a fan of your work for a long time. I think you do a wonderful job. Um, actually, let's start with this because honestly, I think you're maybe the only other person who does the same thing that I do, where I think you strike a perfect balance between, um, you know, criticizing. Democrats and continuing to criticize the right substantively in my view. And I'm not going to give specifics or anything, but if people are familiar with the space, they might get a sense of what I'm referring to. I think some outlets like all they do is beat up on the right. And it's like, okay, that's kind of low hanging fruit at a certain point. I get it. Like a hundred percent of your videos bashing the right seems a little excessive, but then on the flip side, there's also others who, think that from a left-wing perspective, I'll just beat up on Democrats all day. And it's like, but then you're also losing perspective as to what's going on with yeah. Republicans and the right. So how did you build the sense of like how to walk that line and do it effectively? It's weird because it's almost not even really a, a, a conscious thing. It's more just sort of the stories that interest me while also being grounded in the sense of what is really going on ultimately when you're discussing various stories. Like even when I'm discussing, even when I'm criticizing the Democratic Party, I do try to remember to at least briefly bring up the GOP and how, you know, they're of course completely in opposition to, for example, the budget bill. And there's not one single senator on board with that. So to, to, to try and just, you know, drop in that knowledge that yes, while the Democratic Party clearly is uh, horrible in almost every way, there is still another party that is has no interest at all in helping you and are always going to fight against you. Just to to give people that 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 context and that perspective, and I think that's really, I mean, it's really important when doing this work to have that kind of context. I'm somebody that you know comes from not this world. I mean, I, I I used to work behind the scenes in video production for a news network in, in Toronto. I never really had any intention in being a political commentator. I always saw myself as more of just kind of the average Joe. So by having that perspective, by going into this work with that perspective, I'm also always aware of how the average person consumes content or how they view politics and are, you know, many people are, are largely apolitical, don't really lean left or right, or, or I should say, don't really lean 
for a particular party, but are more just, you know, in general for certain things. So I try to speak to that audience in the hopes of educating them and kind of bringing them on board for this journey and, and for this fight for a, a better world, as that was kind of my entry point. I mean, my entry point into this world was was John Stewart Colbert and then TYT. Mm. And having that perspective, you know, as, as the starting point kind of gives you the idea of how to speak to people and try to bring them in and and uh, speak to the issues that they care about, but also in in the hopes of educating them and hoping that they are going to become, you know, in some way, whether it's through their personal lives or through what they do professionally, in some way, getting them in, involved to actually help and, and join this movement to um, improve society. Yeah, so um, I, I actually feel a similar way about it that you do, like the way that I uh, determine what stuff I cover is pretty much solely like, hey, what am I interested in? And that happens to balance out in a way where I'm sort of beating up on Republicans and Democrats in a way that's proportionate to how shitty they are. Um, I think the thought that keeps me doing that, because if I let my emotions get the best of me, I'd probably beat up on Democrats like 90% of the time. Um, because in my mind, elected Republicans are too far gone. It's like, why am I even fucking bothering doing this? Whereas the Democrats, you think there's some hope. So it's like, I almost want to spend 90% of my time beating up on them. But the thought that overrides my emotions is that you have to think about the perspective of like, what if somebody new is coming to my channel right now and they don't know anything about politics and all they see me do 24 seven is shit on Democrats then they might get the idea that like, oh, well, it must be these other guys are right, right? And you don't want to leave anybody with a misimpression or something that they can misconstrue or take out of context or run with in a negative direction. And um, I think having that broad perspective is something that's just really important for people in our space. And I don't think uh, many people take that responsibility seriously. Now, you mentioned you used to work at... Um, what was it, a news outlet? Yeah, CTV News in, in Toronto. So tell me about, um, you know, your background and your come up and when you started and why you started and what from your childhood influenced you and all that stuff. Sure. Yeah. So it's it's a long journey where there was really never any clear indication of that I would end up, you know, here doing this. I mean, I grew up with severe social anxiety. So the mm -hmm. idea that I'm talking to, you know, millions of or, you know, on a good day, millions of people, but a lot of people online watching this stuff is just it's crazy to, you know, to tell old David that. But so I, um, you know, I went to college initially for uh, for e-commerce, so for essentially business online, and with no real idea of what I wanted to do. I know I liked the internet. I mean, this is back in 2003. So I know I liked, you know, <laughs> being on the internet, so I went to e-commerce. Um, and then that kind of went, you know, I worked for a year after that. It kind of went nowhere. And then I was looking back, like, I want to get back, you know, I, I want to go back, I want to learn something different. And um, I began to really get into uh, uh, TV shows. And I thought, hey, you know, video production, maybe I should get into video production. So I did that. I went back to college for for three years to to get into video production, and then left college with a a job at CTV News uh, in uh, in Toronto, working behind the scenes, doing video editing mostly, editing the the news programs every night. And um, while I enjoyed it, I felt like I was sort of a, a cog in the machine, and that I wasn't really. It felt like that there were real limitations on what you could do in a job like that. Like some people really enjoy doing the same thing every day. I did not do that, or mm -hmm. did not enjoy that. So I wanted to uh, kind of you know 
sort of just explore various areas. I, I got into marketing for a couple of years. So I did that. I got laid off twice from the same company um, due <laughs> to downsizing. So that also gave me a different perspective when it came to, you know, being in the workforce and just how how you're treated as a as an employee at these large companies. And then um, this was around, I guess, 2015, 2016. Bernie Sanders started to become a, a big thing. This is when I really, you know, I was at that point, I've been watching, you know, John Stewart Colbert, TYT for for several years, and uh, Bernie came on the scene and really, honestly, inspired me a lot. Uh, that same year, I ran uh, as a Green Party candidate. Again, I'm still somebody at that point who is very uh, socially socially anxious, a lot of anxiety. The idea of me, you know, being in debates and talking with people, running on a campaign is was crazy, but I did it. Took that risk. Learned a lot. Of course, you know, I lost. I was the Green Party candidate in a writing that had no chance to, to, to elect a Green Party MP. But it was the experience and and that whole um that whole experience that really gave me a sort of an indication that I wanted to continue discussing these sorts of issues, but for a uh, it, 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 in a different way. So I had always since my entry point was, you know, Stuart Colbert, TYT, my interest always was American politics, even though I was Canadian or am Canadian. My interest was always with the uh, the influence that America has on the rest of the world and getting to discuss more of that. And, you know, the primary election was sort of that's that's when I got into doing this. So mm. after my Green Party campaign ended, I launched my my channel at the end of uh, 2015 and really began to put videos out. I was still working on the side doing other things because I couldn't you know support myself just doing that. But it really got me into it. And then I, I, that's yeah. I, I grew from there. I learned a lot in the process. I mean, I didn't come into this work, you know, knowing everything. I came in to not only educate myself, but educate the audience. And I think that's what helps when it comes to the the sorts of videos that I put out. People, uh, but my my focus is always to educate people because in the process of educating people, I'm also learning myself when I'm getting into this stuff, reading these stories and really grasping what is going on. So being able to you know, while I'm educating myself on that, it's also teaching me how to educate others that are more apolitical, not as into this stuff, or maybe, you know, you know, watch MSNBC, CNN and and try to latch on to people that are stuck into that world and pull them out of it and, and give them a, a different perspective. So that's kind of, you know, the, the the beginning of all this. And now it's, you know, six, six years later and uh, <laughs> it's going pretty well, I think. Yeah, definitely. So what there's a bunch of stuff you said that I want to talk about, but what um how do you structure your schedule? Because, you know, do, do you do like a show every other day or what is it? I It's basically five days a week. So mm. I, I I think I work honestly too much. Um, it's getting to, the, getting to the point, especially for like the past six months, I've just been really tired. Uh, I don't know if it's the topics, what it is, or, or the fact that I have a child now. I'm sure that's part of it. Congratulations, but, uh, by the way. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, so all of that coming together, I feel like I, I work too much. But I, I tend to put out uh, two videos a day, and I try to focus on what is happening you know, in that day to, to try to be as uh, as timely as possible when it comes to these stories. You are very timely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I could but tell, because you'll be the first one out, to talk about something. Yeah, yeah. I just put out a video. Um, I, actually, I'm not sure when this is going to air, but I put out a video of Joe Manchin getting protested by the Sunrise Movement that happened this morning. And I'm like, hey, this is a good story. I want to cover this. So I put a video together, covered that. So yeah, I try to be as timely as possible. That also has the adverse effect of me being exhausted all the time. <laughs> and I think, right. and sometimes potentially not 
being able to do as deep of a dive on a particular issue that maybe I would like to if I had a different format. You know, if mm -hmm. I did three videos a, a week, for example, then I would have much longer, uh, long form videos, go deeper on certain topics. But I do enjoy the day to day, the news cycle and covering that and also trying to bring in topics that maybe were ignored or get a different angle on it. For example, the recent um, there was a committee hearing recently with uh, uh, fossil fuel executives and a lot of people covered the uh, the Katie Porter clip. Uh, the AOC clip, but there was actually some really good stuff from Cory Bush and uh, Rashida Tlaib in that as well that wasn't as covered. So I figured, you know, even though I enjoyed the Katie Porter clip and the AOC stuff, I want to cover this these other angles that weren't covered as much and um, and discuss that. So I tried to find, you know, what sometimes when not everyone else is covering, though, you know, certain topics you're going to cover them because they're huge, but other topics like that climate change uh, committee hearing, I thought was a, a good place to try and bring a different perspective and that maybe hadn't been explored or as as widely publicized as other uh, other clips were. Um, I can definitely relate to the, the to the burnout thing you mentioned, because there was a time when I would do five shows a week and the shows would be two, two and a half hours. Uh, there was even a time when I would do five shows a week, but I would do just an audio version and then I would record the video version separately. So it would be mm. like four hours of a show per day. Um, and then plus at the time I was doing 100% of my work back end prep, front end, you know, mm -hmm. editing, uploading. And I, I distinctly remember feeling, first of all, I gained a ton of weight. If anybody sees a picture of me from back then, I'm like, I'm big. Um, and I remember feeling like so exhausted, but at the same time, I do also feel like it's a different kind of feeling than somebody who's working a job that they don't really love. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's a, there's almost, there's a fulfilling kind of burnout slash exhausted feeling. And there's a feeling of burnout that's like hollow and empty and yearning, Yeah. you know? And so, yeah, I mean, I've, I know you feel the same way that like, I'm, I'm very thankful for, for where I ended up being, because I'm one of the very few people who can actually do something that they really, really care about. Um, yeah, and and I used to work 12-hour night shifts, so like, <laughs> no, like having that experience wow. working 12-hour night shifts, doing this work, even on my worst day, it's nowhere near what it like. I like I, I don't want to misconstrue anything. I enjoy what I do. I enjoy my life. But of course, in anything, if you consume it too much, especially when the news is so negative now, like there's. Right. It feels like there's no progress happening. And then you have to remind yourself or you have to look in places where there are little victories like the recent elections. Sure, there are, you know, a, a, a big a big loss, even though, you know, who cares about Terry McAuliffe? But <laughs> he lost the race. But at the same time, the DSA, I think they had like 32 victories, Whoa. Uh, like like a 70 percent like success rate during Whoa. the elections. And there were like, city council positions, that kind of thing. But still, there's still a you know, there is a left wing movement growing. That I think a lot of us just aren't as tuned into because it's not congressional seats, it's not you know, it's not the Senate, it's not the presidency, but it's still there is a movement growing in in the U.S., but also I think around the world that is a little more aware, especially when it comes to climate change. I think that, that's a massive motivating factor, especially for young people who are going to live in this world, you know, for the next 80 years. So there is a uh, that's happening. So we have to remind ourselves, I think, that there are these little victories going on, even if the big victories, you know, haven't come. So let me ask you a question. Do you feel like, and I'm torn on this question myself, I really don't know the answer. I mean, I have instincts on it, but I don't think I have a hard answer. Do you feel like a left-wing movement 
needs a figurehead in order to be the guiding light and, you know, more or less set the framework of the agenda? Or in classic lefty fashion, does it have to be the opposite, that it's almost like totally bottom up, completely organic, completely democratic and stuff like that? I don't know if there's really, yeah, I don't have a clear position on that. I I can see the benefit to having someone like a Bernie Sanders um, when it comes to educating the masses and getting people involved. But when it comes to the actual, you know, victories, as long as you have groups like the Sunrise Movement, like the DSA that are uh, leading the organizational efforts of these sorts of movements and helping to lead people, uh, lead uh, society to, to victory with, with these sorts of, of wins and, and, and the activism, I think that's ultimately all you need. But I do see the benefit of having someone like a Bernie Sanders, clearly. I mean, we saw, you know, Medicare for all go from barely being discussed to being a, a, a massive topic. So that example alone, you see the importance of having someone like that be able to galvanize all these people together for, you know, a primary, be it 2016, be it 2020. That does help. But I don't think it's necessary for victory. Yeah, like. The more we talk about it, the more it's like dawning on me that it kind of is a paradox for the left, because on the one hand, like as a matter of principle, I believe democracy is a good thing. Political democracy, I would even have direct democratic votes on specific issues in the U.S. I think we need a hell of a lot more economic democracy in the country. So democracy is generally speaking a very positive thing. And it's a positive thing, again, as a matter of principle, because you give people more independence, more autonomy, more control over their lives and all that stuff. But at the same time, um, the paradox is that uh, in order for a movement to be successful, you need leadership, you need order, and you need efficiency. And sometimes democracy, even though it's a positive thing, can get messy. You know what I mean? So it's almost like you kind of need both things at once. You need the bottom up and the top down. And maybe that's why it's so hard, generally speaking, for the left to ever really have sustained long-term movements. But I mean, you mentioned Bernie, how he got you involved. I was already involved when Bernie came along, but he was definitely, you know, a spark for me, he also attracted so many people to my channel because, you know, we're like the Bernie wing of media, if you will. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, it's a it's an interesting paradox, and I don't think that there are any clean answers. Yeah, I, I think it's it's one of these things where we're just going to have to keep keep, you know, keep going on. And, and I you know, at some point there will be new leaders that pop up that, uh, you know, it's going to be tough to ever compare to Bernie just because of his mm. record, because he, he's a guy who was, you know, largely ignored for most of his career. Yep. There's no one else that's really like that, that has this kind of dedicated fight for that long while being a lawmaker. But at the same time, there are, of course, going to be people that I think can be potential, you know, leaders of this sort of movement, especially when it comes to certain elections. But I also think it's important to not just look at politics as, you know, election to election to election, but what is what is ongoing? So what yeah. is the, you know, in terms of uh, efforts, be it to, to unionize, be it for ballot initiatives, uh, be it to to grow, you know, interest or education in certain p- political issues. So it's it's about that ongoing fight. In addition to also, of course, I think it is important. I think electoral politics is important, of course, but it's not the only, you know, it's not the end all be all. We have to be aware that there is uh, progress can be made without those sorts of elections, um, you know, without Bernie being the president, even though if he became president, <laughs> I think it would have a massive impact. But it's also important to be aware that uh, you can have victories, these little victories, uh, despite those sorts of losses. Yeah. One of the few things that's making me feel good these days is this recent um 
wave of strikes, you know, yeah. where unions are like, yeah, we're fed up. You know, we get it. There was a pandemic. Uh, you had all these uh, issues in the economy. A lot of people were laid off and everybody took a haircut. But you know what? Like in the case of John Deere, they're like, you guys just made over $5 billion in profit. And you have us on a 1997 contract where you stripped away our benefits and created a two-tier system and we're not getting decent raises and we're working six days a week and all this stuff. It's like, I think workers are realizing that it seems like there's no captain of the ship right now. Nobody's looking out for you. So you guys got to look out for yourselves. And that's leading to this wave of strikes. And hopefully it leads to like more people unionizing, period. Yeah. And the, the CEO of John Deere, I think, raised his his pay 160 percent during the pandemic. Yep. Like when when the public sees that, I don't care how you think you are politically, like what you lean politically. When you see that, how nobody thinks that's OK, like that he can do that while the workers are, are paid the same, the ones that are generating that profit for you. So that it's also, I think, a great recruiting tool. Those yeah. kinds of topics, these kinds of strikes. This is how you get the, you know, the working class on board that may not view themselves as being progressive or on the left. But when you uh, when we discuss these issues and inform people, hey, we are fighting for you. We care about these. Issues. We want to see, you know, be it uh, political leaders that are fighting for this or just in general, we want to see uh, your fight succeed. We are able to um, really get down to having people understand why we are doing what we are doing, because, you know, people will look at. Commentators, the left or the right, think they're doing the same thing, think they're maybe in it for themselves. And maybe some of them are uh, when it comes to the left. But ultimately, I think people like you and me, we are fighting for a better society. And ultimately, what that means is better economic conditions for the most amount of people possible. So when we see people, CEOs make that kind of uh, increase in their pay. Meanwhile, the workers are getting screwed. That is a great recruiting tool for us to go, hey, look, this is what's happening. And this is what needs to be done to change it. You know. It's so what I think I'm doing with my channel, and then I'll flip this question on you and ask you uh, to dig in deeper about what you're doing with yours. I know you just said trying to create a better world, uh, and I agree with that as well. But I think one of the things that I care deeply about, and I always tell people that makes me happier than hearing anything else, is when somebody comes up to me at Politicon or one of these events and they're like, Hey, man, I was going down the alt right pipeline and you got me out of it. And that makes me feel amazing because I really try to craft arguments and say things in a way that can appeal not just to the people who already like me, but to the people who might be predisposed to not agreeing with me up front, might think I'm a douchebag or whatever. And so that's one thing I pride myself on. And then the other thing is, and this is more of a long-term thing, and I'm not going to be able to maybe even ever know the answer to this, but... You know, if if the job that I'm doing is sufficient and decent, then there will come a day, perhaps not even too far in the future, where there are a thousand Bernie Sanders type politicians who are elected in the U.S. People who genuinely are not in it for narcissism or self-aggrandizement or getting a payday, but they're in it for the same reasons Bernie's in it. And hopefully along the way, I also <laughs> maybe take the whatever the downsides are of Bernie in terms of, I think maybe he's a little bit naive and assumes a little too good of other people. And I don't think he's great at understanding how power functions from within the belly of the beast. But hopefully these new Bernies that are being created almost are are the evolved version where they also know how to like fight and win. Yeah. 
There's also power in numbers as well, right? Like yeah. a single Bernie can only do so much. Whereas if you have a thousand Bernies, then you have some real progress because they're able to actually work together and fight for that. But yeah, when it comes to my channel, it, it's, this, it's the same for me. I, I want to be able to change minds. Uh, I think this is, this is, it's important to understand that all of us sort of have a different kind of, well, I'm sure we share a lot of uh, the same audience when it comes to, to um, a lot of the stuff we do. We also sort of have our own little niches, right? I yeah. think you... I think you're able to speak to the right in a way that I that I don't. Whereas I think I speak to more uh, people that are maybe a little more apolitical or MSNBC, mm. CNN watchers. I try to be kind of kind of change their minds. But also, you know, th everyone has their their the different angle that they take and and their approach. But ultimately, all of us have the uh, the the desire here to improve society, to change society, to to, to educate people, to change minds, to get uh, people involved, and by seeing those sorts of, uh, by seeing, you know, the Just Democrats, for example, those kinds of victories where, where there are slowly but surely people that are that are with a certain perspective that are not corrupted by corporate money, by having more of them in, they'll be able to gain power and be able to do more. I know there's a lot of disappointment right now with the, the Build Back Better agenda, and I agree with all of those criticisms. But understand as well, uh, or I think we have to understand that the more of them that exist, the more power they have. So as long as, you know, Pelosi and Schumer and Biden are the leadership of the Democratic Party, there's really only so much you're going to get done. It's once those leaders get replaced by actual left leaders, working class leaders, that's when you can really begin to judge, OK, is there actual progress here being made in, in Congress with these sorts of working class leaders? And I think at that point, there will be like when it gets to the point where there is someone like, you know, someone like a Cory Bush in, in charge of uh of um of 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 the house then you're going to be able to see uh some actual progress get made now the other issue though of course especially uh i mean this this is the major issue is climate change there is a limited time frame that we have to mm. really improve things and you know even apart from that of course every single day people are suffering with a, a lack of pay lack of paid leave uh, and this is also a, a major issue um, or, or one of the main reasons why I find American politics so, so fascinating is that there really is an influence that the U.S. has over other countries, especially as a Canadian. I see it every day. We almost use the U.S. as like the lowest bar. So as long as we're a little better than Americans, then everything's fine. <laughs> but mm. so if, for example, if Bernie's uh, Medicare for all bill had passed, we would have to improve our healthcare system because our healthcare system does not include dental, does not include, um, it may include vision. Actually, I'm not even sure about that, but it doesn't include uh, dental. Uh, universal pharmacare is not there. So we would have to then react. We couldn't just have, you know, the second, a second fiddle uh, healthcare system compared compared to Americans. And that, that goes for a lot of issues. So by having, when the U.S. improves, I think we all improve. And it, it begins to... Um, uh, raise the bar in terms of what is acceptable for the rest of society worldwide. Yeah. Um, to your point, I think that there is like a, this follower effect that can happen if you just have one really strong leader. So I actually have no doubt that if there was one congressperson on the left flank who was bold enough to stand up and be like, 1.75 trillion is not enough. If you want my vote, here's a list of executive orders. If one of them went out there and did a press conference like Joe Manchin did and made that argument, then I think you'd have a bunch of them come out of the woodworks and be like, 
Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. I'm 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 with him or her. That's a good idea because we actually saw that on a different issue. It wasn't even necessarily one that I would have championed, but I think there was it was Cory Bush who came out after January 6th and was like um I want to expel any of the Congress people who were involved or something like that, or any of them who who downplayed the election because it's literally anti-democratic and authoritarian. And so I want them expelled from Congress. And I know I happen to know that behind the scenes, all of them are really hesitant to say that because they think it's like it goes too far, it violates decorum, it's all that stuff. But then when Cori Bush went out there and said it, there were like four or five that immediately followed her and were like, yeah, no, yeah, that, that, I agree with that. So that's one of the things that frustrates me is that, well, there's two things, that fru- there's a lot of things that frustrate me, but one of the things is like one really strong congressperson who's a leader who's willing to take the incoming fire, it would sort of change the game. Uh, and then the other thing is, oh man, if we really had gotten Bernie, I mean, I think people understate just how powerful the president of the United States is, you know, yeah. because Joe Biden, if he wanted to, right now could effectively legalize marijuana, just change it from schedule one to schedule five, free all the nonviolent drug offenders, um, abolish all student loan debt. There's even a provision in Obamacare. David Dayen wrote a great article about this. There's a provision in Obamacare that would allow Biden to say, I'm just going to give everybody health care because it's an emergency right now. And I have no doubt that if Bernie was in there, let's just say he would have done at least half of these things. So in a way, even though we're really far away from our goals, man, it... uh, it just takes one election cycle to change everything from the inside. And that's without even commenting on like the strikes and things that are happening on the outside. Yeah. That's why I'm, I always find it perplexing when people say, Oh, I don't care at all about electoral politics. It doesn't matter at all. It's like, no, it kind of matters. Yeah. <laughs> I think it does matter who the president is. I think a lot of progress can be made depending who's, who's, uh, who's in that position. So yeah, absolutely. My God, if it would be a different world right now, if, if Bernie, I mean, 2016, I think, honestly, was probably his best chance simply because of how hated Hillary Clinton was. Right. I think by the time you got to Trump, people, a lot of people, especially the ones that, you know, just pull the lever, don't think too much about it. They just wanted Trump out. So and and they were being told by the mainstream press that Biden is the most electable one. Bernie's too far left. He's going to scare people. People, even though I think a lot of them agreed with Bernie. I mean, you look at, you know, ballot initiatives, say, for example, in, in Florida, where they, they yeah. backed the, the wage increase. So people agreed with Bernie on the issues, but they thought, well, I don't, I can't take a risk. So I'm going to vote for, for Biden. But in 2016, you know, there was this real anger towards the democratic establishment to, to Hillary Clinton that, you know, if Bernie had just a few more months, he may have been able to, to, to win that, that race there. And I think he would have gone on to defeat Trump, but you know, we can't go back and <laughs> and think about yeah. this too often because it's so depressing. But, uh, it's, it's just to say that, yes, you know, having someone in that position, is of course incredibly important and bernie i think i agree with you would be doing executive orders would be fighting joe manchin may even may even got to the point where he'd be threatening to you know investigate his daughter over the mm. open scandal like these are the kinds of things that you want to see from a leader because ultimately what's the goal the goal is to help people so yes. if you're in the way of that progress well do whatever is necessary to uh, to change that person's mind or to get rid of that person i mean <laughs> everything necessary with the exception of certain things but uh to, to ensure that you can help the most amount of people as, as, as possible. And I think Bernie would be doing that. 
Yeah, you have to have such a strong moral compass in the DC swamp to really keep your eye on the ball and understand that why you're there is really to help people because people get lost in like the decorum of it and the civility of it. And now you're in the club, you're not outside the club and you know this politician. Oh, turns out that politician took X amount from pharma and then screwed over people and kept the drug prices high. But it's like, ah, but they're a good person. It's like, oh, Bernie seems to be one of very few who is in D.C. and is like, nope, I still this still see this clearly. The whole point is helping people. Yeah, but even he, and, and I think this is important to note, even he, he very rarely will name names and connect right. those people directly to those, those names, but I think it's it's for a purpose. It's I think strategic. when you're, yeah, exactly. When you're in D.C., you still have to work with these people, right? In terms of you want this person's vote on this particular thing. So if you go there and is like, and you're like, you know, two thirds of the Democratic Party are just corrupted by these corporations. Here's each one of them. And this is what they're doing. You're not going to get their votes on anything. <laughs> so you have ha these, you know, there's an inside outside game that has to be played. Um, and I think some do it better than others. I think I think Bernie has sort of seen him sees himself now as the guy that can sort of be the the progressive whisperer to Joe Biden. So he I think he doesn't. He doesn't try to he doesn't attack Biden at all with the intention, I think, of trying to change his mind from the inside. Meanwhile, you have people like Cory Bush or others that are and, and activist movements, of course, that are pushing from the outside on on the administration and on Democrats. So, yeah. Yeah. So to your point, yeah, if you and I, you know, I've said this in regards to Biden a thousand times as it pertains to build back better. But the carrot or stick approach is two pronged. And yeah, on the one hand, it's like scorched earth i'm coming for you but on the other hand it's like actually i am going to be your best friend if you do the right thing you know what i mean that's the whole idea of like tell joe mansion hey your daughter's directly involved in the EpiPen price gouging scandal we have her caught on email i'm an investigator she could go to prison but maybe we won't even investigate her if you just do the right thing on this and maybe i'll give you another military base in west virginia and maybe i'll give you x amount more money uh for infrastructure in west virginia maybe i'll give somebody in your family a position in my administration what's your wife doing she could come you know like mm -hmm. so you have to do both things because that's like part of the game and then if even then you know joe manchin presents uh, a problem and doesn't do it which by the way i think he would do it in that scenario but let's say even then he doesn't do it okay well then joe biden or bernie sanders or whoever can really go on a public crusade against Manchin and say, we're going to primary you, we're going to have somebody replace you, you're a Republican, go join the party you belong with, so on and so forth, you're public enemy number one, you work for Big Pharma, yada, yada. But yeah, uh, you know, I think you have to be strategic and intelligent, and there's a time and a place for scorched earth, and there's a time when you don't do that. But it's all about the results, and it's all about how well you carry it out. Um, you mentioned something interesting before that I want to go back to. You said that you had severe social anxiety. Uh, when I was a kid, I had, I was told it was called a stammer. I don't know how that really differs from a stutter. I don't know if it's maybe slightly different from a stutter, but uh, apparently I had a stammer, which is similar to a stutter, or maybe it's just a stutter. I don't know. Uh, and I'm also, people don't know this about me. Well, maybe they do if they've been listening to me for a long time, but I'm actually extremely introverted. Like I, you know, I'd rather be at home by myself, reading something, watching something, than at a party 100% of the time. Because yeah. when I'm at a party, it's a giant, I feel like it's a drain and it's a burden and I need time away after I'm with people for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. um, so talk a little bit about your severe social anxiety. Where do you think it came from? How did you get over it? And I mean, it really is interesting that you're in this field given that reality. Yeah. Um, 
Man, where it came from, I mean, it's one of these things where I think you, as you're growing up, you sort of just absorb your environment. Um, my parents both have, they aren't, they were never as anxious as, as I am, but they have, you know, moments like that. And I think I, I definitely absorbed a lot of that uh, growing up. And I don't know, I, I was always, I was first described as, you know, a shy kid, but it got to the point, you know, I was like 17 years old and I would, I, I remember this distinctively because I wanted to rent a video game at, at Blockbuster back when they existed. <laughs> and um, I was, I was so socially anxious. I was too nervous about the social interaction at the counter with the person, you know, giving me the game. So I, I didn't go because of that. So when it, when it got to that point, I'm like, I need help. So that's when I actually went to seek professional help through, uh, through CBT, cognitive behavioral uh, therapy, and I did that for you know a month or two, but even even that got to a point where like now they want to you know begin challenging you in in real life, and I wasn't ready yet, so I was like all right, I'm out, <laughs> not mm -hmm. happening. I just wasn't ready to to really you know change it. It wasn't really until I moved away, I forced myself to go to a college that was you know hours away. I had to move out of my house, and that's what really helped to open me up. And then eventually, um, years later. I uh, did ayahuasca in in Peru, and mm. actually, I learned a lot about that through the Joe Rogan podcast. Funny enough, uh, but so I did that, and that also helped to you know alleviate a lot of my, especially my depression at the time, that completely evaporated. But also helped to cut my anxiety, even though I still have it from time to time. I I know how to manage it in a way that I didn't before, so that helped. Uh, magic mushrooms also helped me as well. So there are these psychedelics that I think should be decriminalized, should be used at least by professionals as a tool in their toolbox to prescribe to people, maybe in, you know, a professional setting, in a controlled setting, but do it in a way that, that, um, I mean, that helps people and, and isn't forcing them to be on a pill for the rest of their lives. Cause you can, a lot of these issues, be it depression, anxiety, you can deal, you can manage them or, or, or eliminate them, I should say, with proper use of psychedelics. In, and again, it's important, I think, to be in a controlled setting for that kind of thing. But it's it's the kind of thing where we have the science, we have the data, we have mountains of, of people and their experiences with this stuff. This is something that we really need to continue looking at in, in terms of decriminalizing and legalizing. And actually, Detroit, I just saw recently, they decriminalized all psychedelics. So, you know, certain cities are, are doing the right thing and are moving in the right direction. But it's going to take, I think, more of a a uh, societal awareness of just the impact and importance that psychedelics can have on people's lives for there to really be a dramatic shift in how um, the healthcare industry looks at this issue. And of course, you know, that gets to big pharma and, and they don't want that done because they can't really uh, patent, you know, nature. So that gets into their profits. But if we have an honest discussion about how can I, how can we actually help people and improve society by cutting anxiety and depression, psychedelics is, I think, the number one way to, to do that. You said so many interesting things there that I want to respond to because this is like, in some ways, it's actually a big um, uh, personal difference between us. So you used ayahuasca and you used magic mushrooms. How many times did you use them? Let me start with that. Uh, so ayahuasca, it was like a week long thing. I saved up like okay. a, ton, a ton of money to, to go. It was a, it was the whole like experience. Like you're with a shaman. There's a group of people that that you're with, um, and it was so. I think we did it three times, three or four times that week. Um, and mm. uh, and so, yeah, it was like a whole week experience. Magic mushrooms I've used a few times, uh, once for actual like health benefits. Um, it was actually while I was running as a Green Party candidate. It was before my first debate. I was 
like a wreck. Like I was, I'm like, there's no way. Why would you take it before your debate? No, no, no. Sorry, sorry. It wasn't right before the debate. Oh, okay. It was like it, it was like it was like two weeks before because I wanted to like just oh, okay. clear. I wanted to like clear my head right. of all this of all this worry, this this fear. Um, so I took it and it helped. Honestly, it helped me a lot to be able to get through that whole process. Uh, and then I used it a few more times after, but that was like the most. Um, in terms of using it, that was the the actual health benefit aspect of when I used that that first time. So you, so what did it lift your anxiety and depression? Did it happen immediately? Was it like a slow process? But it lifted. Explain how that felt. So when you're actually on uh, mushrooms, it's it's like a six hour experience. So it it's it can be hell for some people. <laughs> I mean, especially if you want to do actual work. Like it's it's a mixture of extremely hard laughter and and crying and tears like it's it and at times you're both so happy and so sad at the same time it's very hard to explain <laughs> but but it's if you go into it with a certain intention so i went into that experience with the intention i was alone at the time doing this um and actually i should say you should probably have someone around you who's who's uh who's sober during this process but i, I was aware enough i had my ayahuasca experience already like years before so i was more aware of, of how this whole, this whole thing would go so I took up with the intention of wanting to just, you know, ease my anxiety, get a more of a recentering back to, you know, mother nature, back to earth and and kind of remove myself from all of the outside pressures. And that's what it does. Like it's it is almost an, an instant thing after those, those six hours. I mean, you feel like when you're coming out of it, you feel as I felt amazing, like just completely amazing. You feel like all this weights off your shoulders. You have a, a clearer head. You ha it gives you a perspective that this isn't like the most important thing in the world. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and I think that helps to give you awareness and context for your own life when you when it relieves that kind of pressure from you, making you understand that you're still a, a tiny dot in this massive universe, that really helps to um, allow you to sort of be yourself in a way that maybe uh, we can't when we're so stuck under these pressures and, and this stress. So uh, bear with my like potentially dumb question here, but is that potentially because like the experience was so earth shattering and intense and powerful and negative that just being back to reality almost in comparison feels amazing or is it because it actually does something you think in your brain whatever it might be chemical wise that uh really like sort of resets you so uh, just based on the actual science and studies the, the understanding is that there is an actual uh chemical change that that it can have on you now, now even if even if that wasn't the case you know, I don't really care what 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 the what the mechanism is. I care about the outcome. So the impact on me was that I was happy. I was I felt different. I felt uh, like this weight was off my shoulders. So even if it just was because it was this incredible experience that was so you know um, intense, then fine. Like if if that's the reason, right. then, then cool. But uh, my understanding, and, and you know, I'm not an expert in this field, just to be clear. But my understanding is that it does have a uh, an actual impact and a, a long lasting impact. I mean, this is the difference between taking a pill versus taking a, a psychedelic. Psychedelics have a real long-term impact, be it, uh, most people say usually six six months to 18 months is is how long they feel that that experience. Some people, it's, it's their entire lives uh, have completely changed and wow. they never need it again. Um, but someone like me, you know, my, my anxiety is so intense. I, I do need, you know, a, a, uh, a new experience every now and then just to kind of remind myself of, you know, that... I'm this individual, not, not this, uh, you know, stress-filled, anxiety-ridden person. But uh, yeah, I think it changes depending on the person. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, 
for me, I've always talked about how I I feel perfectly comfortable taking a substance that's either going to bring my mood up and make me feel energetic and focused and adrenaline or or bringing my mood down and making me feel tranquil and relaxed and at ease and all that stuff. And so, you know, my experience with substances is more in that realm. In fact, I've never really done... Um, I mean, I guess weed is mildly psychedelic, and it certainly is for me. I feel like I'm like extra sensitive to weed for whatever reason. So I've had uh, touches of it in in that respect, but I've never done magic mushrooms, never done ayahuasca, never done LSD, never done any of that stuff. My drug experience is more with the pills and the uppers and the downers and things of that nature. And I always personally felt like I'm actually terrified of psychedelics because based off what I've heard everybody talk about, they across the board, they say it's a super powerful experience. And that alone is kind of scary to me. But most people say, yes, positive effects like you're describing. Handful say it was terrible. I never want to do it again. Uh, I don't remember what the substance was where I was told that. But um, what would you say to somebody like me who's, I guess you could say a, a touch of a skeptic that they're, for me, because again, I enjoy the experience of, I want to go up or I want to go down or I want to relax or I want to focus, but I've never really dabbled in the, let me totally change my outlook, my perspective and all that stuff, because I almost feel like life is this delicate balance, especially when it comes to, you know, your inner dialogue and your mood. And I almost don't want to do anything to totally jeopardize that because I'm, I don't feel like I want to, like I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm relatively comfy and stable with the, with the current feels if that makes sense yeah yeah the, the first thing i would say is that it's definitely not for everyone and if you don't feel like you need it then don't do it like the, the, i would never force anyone into experience i would never say oh you should try it anyways if you don't feel like you need it then i don't think you should take it um that said it the it's all about it's all about intention and setting so i would i would never suggest anyone do psychedelics that are if you're going to be in public like don't mm. <laughs> that would be crazy um but if you're at i know if, if you're with a a friend in your home and you know no one's coming over it's just going to be you know you two or like three of you and you just have that experience it's it's a it can be a very moving experience and especially it, you have to be somewhere where you're comfortable where you're around people that you're comfortable with the people that have bad experiences bad trips it's almost always connected to alcohol and being in public or being at a party hmm. i mean if i would never say like don't mix i wouldn't say mix you know drinking with psychedelics because that you're just looking for i mean some people can have a good time on that, but it's, I wouldn't suggest it. It's not, it's not the whole point. It's not the point of, of having psychedelics. Um, so usually people that have bad experience, it's because they mixed it with something else or because they're in a public setting that they, you know, freak them out in some way. But if you are with one other person or two other people and you're comfortable with those people and you can be yourself and you have your experience, it's, it can be very moving. And, uh, especially if you're, with people and you go for maybe a walk, not in public, but like in nature, in a forest somewhere, um, understanding as well, you know, you're somewhere where you, you are familiar with the, with the terrain, you're not going to get lost in the forest, but you have that experience with nature. It's, it's very, it's hard to describe unless you've had that experience. And mm-hmm. I know that's kind of a cop-out answer to say, but it's, it's a very, you're, you're experiencing life at a very different level. Like you, you look at people almost as aliens. Like I, I, I know this very, you know, vividly, but when I had one experience, I just, I was just thinking about, it's so, 
were so weird. Like I'm looking at my hands and this this is just so odd. <laughs> like I'm I'm looking at myself as as a like I'm I'm looking down at my at my human body sort of as like a a disembodied, you know, mm. uh thought or a you know, soul for lack of a better term, looking at just how weird people are in society is. It it just gives you a very different perspective. And I think it it opens your mind up to to um and sometimes this is this is not intentional but it just opens your mind up to looking at things differently especially if you you know if you feel stuck in your life or stuck in a certain way of thinking and you don't know how to get out of that sometimes you just you know a, a light experience can can help you and again it can change depending on how much you take like if you take like i don't know 3 grams of shrooms you're going to have a crazy experience but you can microdose or take a gram and it's it's a very different experience and again do it where it's decriminalized where it's not illegal i'm not you know condoting illegal use of substances here i'm just saying if you have that experience um you can kind of change what what experience you want to have depending on on how much you take now when it comes to ayahuasca i think it's a very different thing yeah. that you know it's it's a whole different topic that is but but when it comes to decriminalized substances like psilocybin um, you can change your experience depending on how much you take. So, um, to change gears here a little bit, would you describe yourself as a socialist or a social Democrat or how would you describe yourself politically? So I, I hate, I hate labels and everybody so, says that when I ask them this and <laughs> I, I get it. I understand that. Like my, uh, based on my content, which is what matters, I, I think I'm mostly a, a social Democrat, but it's. For me, it's it's about what is possible right now. Like, I'm not somebody that that is going to discuss, you know, what it's going to be like on the commune. Like, I don't, you know, that's not that's not my. I don't care about that. I care about the day to day. I care about what's possible now. I care about w the movements that are out there pushing for progress. So, based on that, just because of where society currently is, I'm more of a social democrat because right now that is kind of what's possible. Um, when we get to a different place, I may change. Um, so I, I never really, you know, I, I'm very open to the ideas of socialism. And of course, I talk about, you know, worker co-ops and democratizing the workplace. And, and uh, you know, I, I like the, the Richard Wolff perspective on that and, and how he advocates for that. I think that's a very smart way to go about it, talking about how, you know, we need more power in the workplace, just like you vote for, you know, your elected representative. You can also vote in the workplace for certain things and, and how to use the profits that, that you have created. So... I'm open to all that. I think that's very interesting. I think there should be more worker co-ops, but I don't really, you know, prescribe to any certain ideology because I just don't think it's really productive, especially if the whole point of something like my channel is to educate people. I don't want to, you know, immediately try to or immediately um, feel like or give the impression out that I'm only talking to this certain group and screw everybody else. So it's for me, it's I want more of a welcoming approach to to what I do and bring all different um, perspectives in and, and hoping with the the aim to educate people along in that process. So to cut, to put myself in a certain group, I just don't think is productive for what I do. Yeah. In my experience, pretty much all thoughtful people kind of answer that question in a similar way to how you just answered it. Um, because, you know, I've seen the opposite end of the spectrum is what I would call the label humpers. Somebody like Dave Rubin, who like basically his entire commentary is like, Pfft. Me, bro, I'm I'm like a classical liberal, and, and, and <laughs> let's say words like conservatism and and the socialists and the left, and it's just like you just said like eight things, and you don't even know what you said because he doesn't even bother <laughs> to like define his terms in the process. So, yeah, there's the you know the over the in an obsession with labels can 
very rarely be productive. And this is something that I've uh, talked about myself is that on the rare occasions where I bring up on my show, like how I would describe my politics, I mean, the answer is really nuanced and it's complex. And, you know, I, you could describe me as a social Democrat. You could describe me as a libertarian socialist in some respects, because there are aspects of a post-capitalist philosophy I have, like I want to encourage worker co-ops for businesses over a certain size. Um, but then I also say stuff like, I think populist left is a fair label for me or international moderate, because you know, the things I want are by and large right smack dab in the middle of uh, mainstream U.S. opinion. And it also happens to be what most of the industrial country in the world's already have. You know what I mean? So, yeah, and, and there is, I think, some benefit to calling yourself a moderate. I mean, because right. most people yeah. think they're moderates. That's right. But but they don't really realize like they're they actually are very progressive in their in their views especially right. on economic issues so if if you're presented as uh, a moderate and then you're yeah it's moderate to be for medicare for all it's moderate to want paid leave it's moderate to want higher wages then that begins to change those people's perspective and hey i agree with all those things I, I guess it is a moderate i guess you are moderate to do those things bernie sanders is a moderate um, and then it helps to reframe the political discussion. You know, Joe Manchin is not a moderate. He's a, you know, a, a, a far right winger or a conservative. So it's it does help, I think, to, in that sense to, to use labels. Um, but in terms of labeling our, ourselves, yeah, I just don't I just don't see the, the ultimate benefit to it when our goal here is just to educate society and move things forward as opposed to dividing us into groups. Yeah. So um, I'll ask you, I, I, I'm recording does the second um Crystal Kyle and friends that I'm recording today. I just spoke to TJ Kirk and I asked him this question. I'll ask you the same thing. If you don't have an answer, don't feel bad because I still got plenty of stuff I could talk to you about. But do you have any questions for me that you wanted uh, to ask? Actually, yes. I wrote some things down. <laughs> so, Be my guest. <laughs> <laughs> one was um, uh, your your Kratom use. Yes. So you talked mm -hmm. about this in the past. I'm curious what that did for you. I, I used it once and I found it very beneficial. Um, yeah. So do you still use Kratom and, and how does that, that impact you? I do. I do still use it. Um, I use it pretty regularly. And the way that I describe it to people, and to be fair, it doesn't work like this with everybody. You know, people are very, you know, you're an individual and your chemical makeup is not the same as my chemical makeup. And it does vary wildly, but um, it makes it so that I can control my consciousness better than if I wasn't on it. So the way I would describe it is um, if I have some Kratom and I decide I want to prep for my show right now, I can immediately start prepping for my show and have 100% attention as I'm prepping for my show and absorb things and use them. Um, in a sense, it's almost like what I would imagine caffeine feels like for some people. Because some people say that they really have like a, like caffeine really does a lot for them. It's almost like some people when they take caffeine feels like other people when they take like speed or something. Like it just get, it accesses another gear in their mind. For me, um, Kratom has that kind of a beneficial effect where it it allows me to control my consciousness better when, see this is where it gets weird. If I'm tired, it makes me awake. If I'm awake and I want to go to sleep, it makes me tired. Mm. Very weird, right? It's almost like yeah. a, you know, total like contradiction. Situational, yeah, like, like a situational drug almost, depending on right. what, what, what situation and, you're in. And the way it works too is, um, so if you take a higher dose of it, 
then it will feel more like um, a downer and it'll make you more relaxed and more tranquil. If you take a, a smaller dose of it, it acts more like uh, an upper. And that does mimic uh, the way that Oxy would work. But of course, the problem with Oxy is that uh, if you have too much of it, it slows your heart rate down and you could overdose on it. You know, people die if they have too much Oxy. If you have too much Kratom, you just throw up. You know, it's a natural plant uh, that's grown in a specific region of the world. And yeah, it's still, I would say it's probably uh, one of my favorite substances. There was a time when I would have answered that like Adderall was my favorite substance when I was a college kid. But now looking back at it, I don't really enjoy that like overly awake, uh, speedy feel anymore. I feel like I kind of grew out of that. There was a time where that was like what I wanted, like, ooh, I could feel really alive just by taking a pill and feel really in control just by taking a pill. Now I almost feel like I'm too jittery and uh, I'm not comfortable at a baseline when I'm on something like Adderall now. Okay. Yeah, I just want to know that. <laughs> I heard you talk about Kratom before and it's one of those things where you know, it, it's you get to a point in this work where it can be hard to focus, especially when there when there are some weeks, some days where there's like so many stories, so much going on. You yeah. want to kind of absorb it all at once and you can't. So you have to be able to focus. And it seems like that that helps you with that. One last thing. Um, I was just curious about what, what do you think is motivating Tulsi Gabbard? <laughs> because it's somebody I mean, you know. Very few people, I want to give a shout out to Anna Kasparian. She saw this from a mile away. But Tulsi Gabbard is somebody clearly who's very self-interested. And we saw now recently she just um, celebrated the loss of uh, of McAuliffe in Virginia. And look, I don't care about McAuliffe, but still, to, to, to celebrate that loss over a Republican, we know what you're doing. But like, what do you think motivates her? Do you think Tulsi was ever genuine about anything she actually fought for? You know, there was a time when I would have said, She's totally principled and genuine and honest, and any disagreements I have with her are just disagreements. But, you know, she would back up what she's saying. And then, yeah, I mean, the more time has gone by, um, it went from like a drip, drip, drip of heterodox views where one could still make an argument like, no, she means it, and this is, you know. But now, like, when literally everything you say, is just to bolster the right. And I don't think that's an unfair characterization of it. I think it's, you know, that's a very sober analysis of the situation. Honestly, I don't know what's motivating her, but um, either she had these beliefs that she sort of kept quiet for a really long time all along and she's letting them out now, or it's, you know, uh, doing the old, hey, look, I'm you know, the, the the Dave Rubin tap dance, if you will, like, hey, yeah. here I go. Now I'm on this side of the aisle. But yeah, I mean, it's when she went on Tucker, remember this? She went on Tucker mm -hmm. and Tucker invited her on to bash the Biden administration for bombing children in Afghanistan with a drone. He threw a softball right down the center of the plate and was like, so killing seven children. Go, Tulsi. You know what she did? She pivoted immediately, changed the conversation from, which was supposed to be droning innocence bad and isn't Biden so terrible for droning innocence. Of course, he wants to hype up the partisan angle of it, right? Mm. She goes, well, you have to understand that this is a battle against, uh, you know, like a terrible, deadly ideology of Islamism and Salafism and terrorism. And so, you know, she basically was making the argument like, well, we got to take on this battle because they need, they need to be defeated. 
So she didn't even get <laughs> yeah. that the reason she was invited on was to be like, droning innocence bad and Biden is terrible for droning innocence. She pivoted to like, Islamism bad. Yeah. And she went like he, further right than the, than the discussion was going to go. <laughs> even, what's the, what's the guy's name? Oh, I forget his name. Dave, Dave something? A libertarian guy. I'm blanking on his name right now, and I apologize for that. I covered the story so people can see it, but there's this guy, Dave somebody. Uh, he's like a well-known libertarian. Is he it Dave talked Smith? About, that's it. I think that's it. Yeah. Right. He, I think he, on his podcast or whatever, he talked about it. He played the video and he talked about it. He's a libertarian, and mm -hmm. he went, in on her he was like from a libertarian perspective especially he's like this is the one issue where i defended you which is u.s foreign policy is too imperialistic we got to stop doing all these wars and he's like how do you swing and miss on the one issue where people really were attracted to you over that issue mm -hmm. and yeah i mean i mean she it, Funny, it, it seems like overly calculated what she's doing, but from my perspective, she just seems to be losing more and more and more and more people. And if anything, the audience that she's gaining is just totally partisan right Fox News type stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think she's largely self-interested. I, I, I mean, like I, I look back now at, at her dropping out of the DNC to endorse Bernie Sanders in 2016. I, I, at the time, it seemed like, oh, this Look how brave she was to do this. Now I'm just thinking maybe it was just a personal play. Like here she is making a name for herself by doing this very thing. Maybe she never cared about any of this. It was all for her own ego, for herself to to grow her platform. That that appears to be what always motivated her, at least, you know, recently, especially with these recent moves. So it's it's just, you know, seeing people like that make that kind of switch is is depressing when you know that they had the potential with their platform to do something different, to actually educate benefit society or you know do something positive in some way but they use it instead for their own personal gain it's always disappointing yeah you know it's and it's always tough too because i try my best to give like almost everybody the benefit of the doubt in the sense that i want to think people are honest and upfront and whatever they believe is just hey we're just having an honest disagreement here um and i still to this day try to do that whenever humanly possible but yeah every now and then some cases pop up where it's like this just doesn't fucking add up it doesn't yeah. add up and perhaps my like give everybody the benefit of the doubt worldview one could argue that's a little bit naive but i do think the upside of that though the give everybody the benefit of the doubt type thing and they're honest with whatever they believe i do think that when you approach things from that perspective you actually have the potential to move people more because at least you're meeting them where they are if you're treating them like an honest actor Whereas if yeah. you come right out the gates with like shaming and finger wagging and like, you know, you go nuclear right off the bat and you're argumentative right off the bat, that can have the the backlash effect where people get very defensive up front. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it, it goes without saying in the political game, of course, there's some percentage of people who just really are not in this for the most, you know, <laughs> benevolent of reasons or ideological yeah. reasons. And it comes down to other motivating factors. And they always, and notice how they always go right, because that's where the free money is. Like if you want a billionaire donor, or if you want that, you know, that rumble cash or something like that's, it's, it's very easy to sell out to a, a, to sell out if you're going to be on the right, if you're on the left, I don't know what you're selling out to. Like <laughs> who's going to, I don't know who's going to pay you to, to talk about how you get, should get rid of corporations. Like that doesn't exist. So it's, it's always that, that move to the right. You know, sometimes I fuck myself over with my own principles because, so like, for example, Crystal Kyle and Friends, where we don't take any corporate money, any advertiser money. It is 100% funded through small dollar donors who like the show on Substack. And um, 
So one of the things we do is we post, you know, like a teaser clip on Secular Talk. And especially for the past like three, four weeks or whatever it's been, whatever topics Crystal and I were discussing were like my biggest videos of the week by far. I would get like 200,000, 300,000 views on those videos. Now, I'm so stubbornly principled. Like I told people, we're not accepting a single dollar from any advertisers, from any corporations, anything. So every time I upload one of those videos on the Secular Talk YouTube channel, I click off the monetization. And I'm almost screwing myself because apparently <laughs> the way it works is even Google will still run some of their own ads so that they can make money even if I click off my monetization. So just the fact that I have an AdSense account and I have a video that's getting a lot of views, some people are going to see an ad or two. But like I said, I'm so stubbornly principled, I click off on it. And so I get zero dollars and zero cents for my biggest fucking videos. And there are some times I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, you're so dumb. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> because it's not like, it, I mean, to be honest, it's not like just by me telling people, hey, we don't take any money from this. Can you guys support it? It's not like that drives so many people to like, yes, here's $5 a month. I mean, some do. And thank you guys. I love you to death. But, you know, without a doubt, Crystal and I would be making way more money. Number one, if we allowed ads on the videos. And number two, if we like virtually every podcast reads ads too. So not just like the pre-roll yeah. ads or whatever. They literally will. I'm doing an ad for whatever company. Mm -hmm. We don't want to talk to any company. We don't want any ads to run on it. And sometimes I shoot myself in the foot with how principled I am. But you know what? At the end of the day, when you compare and contrast with the examples you just gave, it does make me feel good. Because I think, you know, I could fucking sleep at night. You know, yeah. I'm not... Everybody knows that never in a million years would I come out there and say something or another thing for any sort of financial incentive at all. I will say, though, if, if Google's putting ads on those videos anyways... It's okay to click the button. <laughs> it's okay to keep the ads on. I mean, I mean, it's, it's the idea that they're making money off of your videos and you're not is is would bother me. I mean, that's that's it does yeah, that's look it does. But <laughs> I told everybody from day one, I'm not taking any corporate money. So if you know, I don't know how much money one of the videos would have made that went two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand views, but it would have helped out a lot because as you know, being in the field that I'm in and we talk about issues that are controversial, whenever I talk about Israel, whenever I talk about Saudi Arabia, whenever I talk about foreign policy, whenever I talk about a number of things, it's like insta demonetized, yeah. done, done, and done, I, done, I, done. So, you know, it is what it is. But, uh, you know, we do have plenty of people. Thank you to all of the Substack subscribers. Thank you to all my Patreon supporters who've stuck with me all the way since Adpocalypse. You know, everybody stepped in and saved my channel when I started making zero dollars and zero cents overnight. Mm -hmm. And they stuck with me and they're still there. So I love my Patreon supporters. I love my um, Crystal Kyle and Friends Substack supporters. And yeah, I mean, to me, that's what it's all about. And, you know, if you're honest and upfront with people, then even when you disagree sometimes, they're like, it's okay. It's okay. Because we know where yeah. it's coming from. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I guess uh, we'll just wrap it up with this real quick. Uh, oh, was there any other thing you could, if you want, we could end on another question you had for me. I know you said you had a little list. I would like to talk about Chappelle, but that may be your next question. I'm not sure. Right, that's what that's what I was going to ask you about. So um, I don't think we're miles apart on this, but I know you had some disagreements on the Chappelle special. So tell me where you're at, and then I'll tell everybody where I'm at. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> this is one of these conversations where I feel like you have to put, like, you have to be very clear about what how you feel about the this thing or that thing in the special, it's to be like very specific or else people think, you know, they're going to turn you off and I listen to your uh, opinion because ultimately here, I enjoyed most of the special. I don't think it's one of his best specials, but I, I enjoyed most of it. 
Um, even some of the jokes that you consider trans jokes, I thought were fine because he wasn't, uh, he wasn't using them as the butt of the joke. Like for example, the, the trans bathroom joke, the whole point of that skit, he was, I mean, he actively said these bills are horrible. He even called out, you know, a fan that, 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 uh, cheered in, in the, uh, in the crowd. So he, he's against those, those anti-trans bathroom bills. But it's like when you say your team turf and that gender is a fact and you're not those he wasn't making a joke then like that people didn't laugh at that part he was making a statement those are ignorant things to say that then helps to normalize the idea that it's okay to be a turf i think that's stupid <laughs> like it 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 doesn't I, I think it's fine to criticize that i think we should criticize that uh at the same time even the Netflix trans employees aren't calling to pull down the special. I'm not calling to pull down the special. But I think it's fine to criticize people that have a platform and they say stupid things, regardless of if it's couched in a you know comedy special or what. It, it doesn't matter if it's if it's art or not. If something was said that was serious, that was not meant as a joke, that was stupid, I think it's fine for us to call it out and criticize that while also acknowledging that we're not calling to you know cancel Dave Chappelle's career or pull the special down. It's just to point out that, hey, he was wrong about this thing. And I think people should be aware of that. Yeah. Uh, so I I, I pr pretty much agree. Um, the art is in how you criticize that because you have you have to treat as a general rule like ignorance is less wrong than maliciousness. So like if Steven Crowder said the same thing, it's like you're being malicious fuck you, and then you can really break down all the ways in which it's wrong. Mm -hmm. In the case of Chappelle, and I've seen a number of videos, some by trans creators on YouTube who point this out. Um, in the case of Chappelle, like, they're just like, he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. You know what I mean? And, yeah. like, there's no excuse for that because he's been doing trans jokes for so many specials that it's like, yeah. really? How are you still talking about, you didn't know the difference between biological sex and gender and how that's like, 101 stuff when it comes to transgender issues like that's the first thing you look up so when he says gender is a fact it's like really you didn't look at the the basic thing like biological sex is a fact gender is something else and nobody's claiming that you know biological sex isn't a fact everybody admits that but mm -hmm. then so again the question is that should be criticized the question is how do you criticize that and i think that's where oftentimes the left crashes and burns uh, fantastically, because even though you're right, ultimately the the trans employees at Netflix and the letter they released, they didn't end up calling for pulling it down, pulling down the special, which is good, correct, don't do that. Um, but there were plenty of people who were calling for it. And so when they're, they end up being like the loudest voices in the room, then people just get the sense like, okay, left activist, authoritarian, Dave Chappelle, free speech guy, just making jokes, calm the fuck down. And so I think um, I think the issue for the left is how do you criticize while not looking like a total lunatic and winning over the crowd? And I think that uh, there's just a, a complete lack of the art of persuasion on on the part of the left. And that ends up hurting the left in the long run. At the same time, though, that's always going to exist. Like you can't, we can't police how people, how certain people are, or, or what the loudest voices are going to be. Because of course, yes, of course, there are people that were calling to, to pull it down and that kind of thing. But we have to understand the right's always going to focus on that. So even when we are as articulate as possible, I mean, if you look at my comment section, 
like it's people are going crazy or uh, angry at me because I'm I'm criticizing Chappelle when I, I'm very clear <laughs> about like, don't pull the special down. But he said this thing that's wrong. Can we acknowledge it's wrong? There's still this huge backlash. No, don't. How, how dare you even criticize him even a little bit? It's like, no, he was wrong. He has a platform. He has an impact. I think we should be able to criticize people so that, that it goes both ways, right? Like those people exist. And and it's we have to be aware that the right is always going to latch on to the most extreme version of what the left argument is to try and make their side's argument. It's never going to get to a point where they're like, oh, it's OK. The, the right isn't or the, the left isn't calling it to pull it down. They're just calling to, you know, they're just criticizing what he said a little bit. They're never going to say that, right? They're always going to use our uh, use the most extreme person on on this side to make their argument. So it's, you know, we have to be able to artfully discuss, you know, say our piece while also being aware that, you know, what where our arguments likely aren't going to be the ones that are going to be publicized because that is not going to get the clicks the way that, you know, a person screaming about the special is going to get the clicks. I, I think you're right about that particularly as it pertains to the right, like no matter what, they're going to focus on whatever the craziest lefty is saying and pretend like that's what all of them are saying. I have no doubt about that. The other issues, though, I do think that in general, this isn't just about Chappelle. I think it's about the idea of comedy in general. And I know because this is a position I hold as well. I just think it's harder in general to criticize comedy because as a general rule, whether it's a TV show, a movie, comedy, art, largely gets a pass in in the public's eye because there's this thing, you know, the willing suspension of disbelief, you know, where it's like, okay, we're all agreeing to go for the ride here, whether you're watching a mafia movie or you're watching whatever, a, show, a superhero thing. So I think that that also kind of crosses over into comedy too, where it's so easy for any comedian to be like, well, I didn't really even mean like half the shit I said, so why are you overreacting? So it's just difficult to criticize comedy in general. Um, and then the other thing is the reason why this was so hard for any sort of criticism on Chappelle is that he's one of the most popular comedians of all time. So like <laughs> try to criticize one of the most popular anything of all time and you're going to get the stands, right? Who are like, ah, you misunderstand it. You're being unfair and all this stuff. Um, but I, go ahead. I will say that when it comes to criticizing comedy, I, I, I agree with you. Like, I think that the conversation for someone um, – that you know maybe plays a, a a character on stage or says something they don't mean to in the effort to make a joke is I think that's different though than what Chappelle did when he said I'm team turf and gender is a fact he was making political statements there he was he moved out of the realm of art and comedy and just made used his platform to make incorrect ignorant statements so I think it's perfectly fine to criticize that kind of thing now if he couched it in a joke and he wasn't serious I think that's a much tougher conversation um. Uh, like the, the, there's, I'm forgetting his name now, but there was a comedian that I referenced in a recent video of mine from the the 1980s, 1990s, who who um he would he would play a character on screen, he would punch down at the marginalized, but Andrew the, Dice the, Clay, yes, Andrew Dice Clay, exactly. Yeah. So he, at the beginning of that, it was seen as oh he's you know he's being satirical or whatever, but then he would his fans ended up being people that agreed with what he was saying, even though he was being a character making a joke. So it gets to a, it can get to a point where even if you're trying to simply make a joke and you're pointing fun at something you may actually attract people that you don't want. And actually, Chappelle had to discuss it with the Chappelle show. He was uh, shooting a, a, a skit for Chappelle show, and one of the crew members laughed when he was in, in uh, I think he was like in blackface or something. And he felt the crew member was laughing at him as opposed to laughing at the satirical aspect of what he was trying to do. And that turned him off doing his own show. So this, I mean, it clues you into that, the fact that Chappelle understands the cultural impact of what he is doing. 
or, 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 or the, the cultural power that comedy has when it comes to delivering certain messages. So for him to not understand that when it came to his, uh, you know, the, the, the comments he made uh, about being Team Turf during his special is is odd to me because he's a guy that appears to be, he seems to be thoughtful. He seems to be aware. He's intelligent. He's definitely funny. He's, he's uh, one of the greatest comedians of, of all time. So for him not to get that, I, I just found it kind of weird. Yeah, so I, I think it's undeniable, anybody who's being intellectually honest and has looked at this thing closely, I think it's undeniable that Dave Chappelle brings a very high level of understanding to racial issues, like the story you just explained about how he felt like, hey, you're laughing at me, you're not laughing with me, this is not okay, this is not the same thing. Um, and he doesn't have that when it comes to trans issues. He's not trans, and he clearly hasn't really dived in, into all the ins and outs and and nuances and complexities of that issue. So I think that's definitely true. Um, and I actually, a slight disagreement with you in a direction that might surprise you is I actually didn't think the special was that good. There were some jokes that were okay, but I thought it was just overall, I think the issue was that he was too preachy is that it's like in the past, you got the sense that the comedy came first and whatever message was there came second. This was like, no, the message is first and the comedy is second. It was more storytelling yeah. than it was just pure comedy. Now you can and that's argue. Also what, God. Sorry, and that's also what I think opens him up to more criticism because at that point you're not doing comedy; you're just like doing political commentary. So like, so you're going to get more criticism because people aren't even really getting the jokes, or, or there are no real. I mean, especially the latter half, there are less jokes, and it's more just giving this perspective that is going to, of course, rub people the wrong way because some of the comments were ignorant. But I will say that um, one area where we do disagree is I think in general. Yes, the idea is okay that, like, you should generally punch up and not punch down in your comedy. But I don't actually think that's a hard, fast rule. I mean, you know, I have friends whose family members died on 9-11, and I watched one of these Comedy Central roasts, and they made a joke about 9-11, and I laughed, and it was funny. So, like, I I'm more of a believer in the more old-school philosophy of comedy of nothing held sacred. Like, there's no there's no no-go zones here. We're going we're gonna to joke about everything. And I agree that, again, in general, yeah, it's it just because of the person I am and my ideology, I would probably find things more funny the more you are punching up. But I do think there are examples of, quote unquote, punching down that are funny, which is why and, and it doesn't come. And here's my final point. It, does, it doesn't necessarily come from a place of bigotry, xenophobia, racism, whatever it might be, malice. And I think that's why there was also a big backlash more supporting Chappelle is because, look, if you define transphobia as like, you think trans people are less than, they're not equal, you know, in the same way racism, what's the definition of racism? You know, you think your race is superior or just a race is superior to another race. You think whatever, cisgender, heterosexual people are superior to trans people, or you think trans doesn't exist or whatever. Yeah, that would be transphobic. I genuinely believe that Chappelle when he's on stage and he's like, no, like, seriously, I wish the best for you and you're real. I mean, he did a joke about how real it is. He's like, I know it's real because imagine a dude just chopping off his dick and being like, don't need it. <laughs> and I thought that was a good joke. It was a funny joke. It's like, yeah, obviously they mean it. And in that instance, it was a joke that cuts more in the direction of being pro-trans than anti-trans, of course. But like, I think that the intention of it, I weigh more than a lot of other people do. And I think that's what gets lost in translation is that if you just jump, if, if people go right to, I think he's transphobic, which means it's malicious, it's bigoted, so on and so forth, as opposed to he's ignorant, 
And but it's not malicious. He actually hopes trans people live fulfilling, happy lives, so on and so forth. I think that's why there was also a big backlash more in defense of him. And then, of course, because there were some number of people, albeit not the Netflix employees, who said, pull down the special. Yeah. Just uh, in terms of, uh, you know, intent versus impact, I, I do. I agree with you in the sense that I think intent matters. I think intent matters in the sense of is this person salvageable? Should we still listen to this person? Does this person still, you know, does this person still matter? Are they important for society? I think that's where intent does matter, is is the longevity of that individual. I think, um, but when it comes to, you know, when you have a platform and and you have a potential to impact millions of people, impact does matter more because you have to be aware of how what you're doing is going to impact. You have a responsibility, yeah. You have a responsibility. Exactly, you have a responsibility to that platform, to to society. So I think that's where, you know, that comes in. And even though his intent, I don't think was harmful, even parts of the special, as you said, I think we're we're pro-trans. He was, he's clearly against the the anti-trans bathroom bills. I think that's what salvaged salvaged him in that sense. It, right, it, yeah. it, it, it showed people, at least it showed me, that he didn't have bad intent. He had, his intent was was pure. But um, that still doesn't mean that everything he said was perfectly fine and you know, we can't criticize him. No, we should criticize people that have uh, power or have platforms, even if it's in the, you know, a comedy special. But I, I do agree with you. I think punching, I think punching down, so to speak, can be funny. Um, but we also have to be aware that it may be funny to us because we're not in those groups. So well, it can't the, be malicious. Let me make that clear. Yeah, okay, it's fair. Yeah, like punch yeah. down, but you could punch down, and it could be a funny joke. But it cannot be malicious because if it's malicious, it's just by definition not funny because you're an asshole. On yeah, purpose. I mean, the, there was also a joke in the in the special where he talked about how he, something to the effect of he should be the leader uh, of the feminist movement, which is you know hilarious. <laughs> like so, but he's you could say maybe that's kind of punching down, but it's not. It's not. He's making a stupid joke. So. You know, I, I thought that that was funny. That you can make jokes like that 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 are that are fun. It's just um, I, I think the worry is is furthering. The, I mean, the, really, the biggest issue for me out of anything was just saying that you're team turf and normalizing that for an audience. Saying that in a serious way that wasn't a joke. Normalizing that for an audience during a special where you are talking about your dead trans friend, like using your dead trans friend to normalize being a turf. I think that's how that- some people saw that. And that, I think, can have a negative impact on, especially that this is, I think, a lot of people's first entry point into what, into being a TERF. So that can now, you know, a lot of people may watch that and think, hey, I'm a TERF, that's perfectly fine. When in reality, no, that means you don't look at trans women the same as, 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 as a biological women. So I think there is a, you know, a, a distinction there that, that it's, it's important to make. Yeah, well, and also, you know, just the, the factual inaccuracies were like, what? Like you, when you're like, well, gender is a fact. Well, yeah. <laughs> that just means you didn't look up the difference between biological sex and gender. And so you didn't do like some 101 shit on the topic. So yeah, that part is indefensible. Um, the team turf stuff, that's definitely not good. Um, it was just, I guess, our slight disagreement insofar as we have one is that I guess uh, since I think the intent wasn't malicious, that makes me lean more on the side of this is just ignorance and therefore I'm not as outraged, but then of course people would make the claim, well, you're not trans. So like, who cares what you think? Well, I mean, that's one of the issues I have with sectarianism in general is that like, we should all be able to talk about whatever the fuck, you know, and it doesn't, I don't, I shouldn't have to be part of that community in the same way I shouldn't have, I'm not in a union, but I want union workers to make a lot more money. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I agree. I mean, shock value for shock value's sake is just stupid. Like Steven Crowder. 
Not yeah. funny, not interesting. It is coming from a malicious place. He has a political mm -hmm. ideology that is incoherent and dumb. And so that's just pushed on you over and over and over. It's like, uh, comedy oftentimes becomes bad when there's no more subtlety. You know what I mean? When it's not, yeah. They're not like hinting in certain directions and like when it becomes too preachy, then you do what I'm doing. I'm just a polit political commentator. You know what I mean? And to your yep. point, yeah, that's probably why I didn't find the Chappelle special. I honestly believe Chappelle is one of the greatest comedians of all time, if not the greatest comedian of all time. And I thought it was one of his worst specials, if not the worst special. There's one other I didn't like. I think he was wearing, had like a weird mustache in it. But <laughs> all the other ones I thought were like A+. And I think Chappelle shows genius. So yeah, um, I forgot where I was going with that. But I think we've, talked quite a bit about this. So I'll give yeah. you the last word and then we'll wrap it up. <laughs> no, I, I think we largely agree uh, on this just in terms of, I, I just tend to look at things as, as impact, as what is the impact of, of said thing? And I think that largely matters more than what intent is. Even if, I mean, this is a weird example, but say somebody out there is, is fighting for Medicare for all, is really like doing all they can to, to get Medicare for all, but personally they don't support Medicare for all. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm sure that person does not exist, but if that person existed, I don't care what that person personally feels or thinks. It's more about the impact. Are they, are they actually helping society? Are they helping to push this forward? And that ultimately is what matters. That's why I tend to look at impact as being more important than intent. Intent is really just judging the character of the person and should we care what this person does going forward. But um, impact ultimately I think is, is the most important. Okay, so everybody uh, plug your stuff, David. Everybody should check out David on Twitter and his YouTube channel, Rational National. Go ahead and plug everything. Yeah, check me out at therationalnational.com. That's the YouTube page. Therationalnational.com slash join is the uh, Patreon page. And I'm on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Twitter at David Dole, D-O-E-L. And uh, yeah, come check out my stuff. Thanks for joining me, man. This was a lot of fun. I had a great time. Had a great time, too. Thanks. All right. You got it. All right. So there you have it. That's uh, David Dole, the Rational National. Now, again, my thing, you guys know this. I I love listening to arguments and perspectives that I don't necessarily agree with, but I think are like well thought out. Uh, that's one of my favorite things to do. And David, uh, 80, 90 percent of the time, David and I are right in alignment. But when we're not, I always want to hear what he has to say. Because um, I think that's important, man. I think too many people live in this bubble of relentless confirmation bias. And I don't think that's good for you. I think it's terrible, actually. I think you should always be hearing out different perspectives and trying to make sense of it all. And maybe something's changed your mind. Maybe it doesn't. But it's always good to hear the thought process, see the logical progression. And yeah, so the the I had seen some of his stuff on Chappelle and I felt like he's a little harder on Chappelle than I was. And so I was curious to sort of have that conversation. And there's really not as much daylight between us as maybe uh, people would have thought. So, you know, listen, that's what happens. He's a thoughtful dude. He's an intelligent dude. And we wound up in similar places, probably not exactly the same, but relatively similar. And uh, so that was a fun conversation. I enjoyed hearing him talk about ayahuasca uh, and his experience with psychedelic drugs. I had no idea that he had depression and anxiety. I had no idea. And so that was fascinating to hear him discuss that. I should have, uh, the only area I messed up is I should have gone more into when he ran for office because what actually makes somebody take that leap of faith and run for office is beyond me. That's, uh, that requires a lot. And for somebody with uh, severe social anxiety to do that, it's like, whoa, how'd you get to that point? So that was perhaps an area where it was a swing and a miss on my part. But uh, either way, listen, everybody go check out Rational National. David Dole, uh, he is great. His channel is wonderful. Highly recommended. And yeah, if you support this show, uh, please subscribe on Substack. It's 
$5 a month, and that gets you the video of the show, and it gets it to you a day early. You also get newsletters along with that. Um, and then if not, you still get uh, get it for free. You can subscribe on Substack for free, and you get the audio version uh, as soon as it drops, which will be a day later on Saturday. Uh, so yeah, that's that. Crystal will be with me next week. Love you guys, and I'll talk to you soon. Peace. Peace.